Ever wondered about the origins of Valentine's Day and whether it was purely the invention of the greeting card industry? That's ahead this week on Footnoting History. Footnoting History friends, it's Kristen here with the history of Valentine's Day. Remember that if you'd like a captioned version of this episode, you can find it on our YouTube channel or the Footnoting History website. You can also find further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, links to our shop page with new merch designs, and our Patreon site, where you can support the podcast by becoming a Footnoting History patron. Thank you to our patrons from all of us here at Footnoting History. We appreciate your support so much. Today's episode is about the history of Valentine's Day. People tend to either really love or really hate Valentine's Day. I number among the people who are kind of meh about the celebration. I'm all for chocolate and champagne and flattering candlelight, and the more of all that, the better. But I don't appreciate the inflated prefix restaurant menus or the conversation heart candies, especially the orange ones. I'm looking at you, orange conversation heart candies. When people recoil at Valentine's Day, it's usually because they assume that all of these commercial aspects are the sole driving force behind the holiday. Basically that Hallmark made it up in order to sell us cards with insipid poetry on them that your significant other has been programmed to become enraged by if they don't get on this randomly chosen day in February. That outrage is partially warranted if that is your position on the holiday, but there are a few things missing from this entirely commercialized scenario that is not entirely the fault of the greeting card industry. So, Let's look at the history of Valentine's Day and see how it all began. Valentine's Day originated as Saint Valentine's Day. So to begin, we're going to look at what that means. Who was Saint Valentine and what did the celebration of a Saint's Day mean to people? Was there really a Saint Valentine? Why, yes. Yes, there was. There were a few of them, actually. If you're so inclined, you can visit one of these St. Valentines in Rome. There is a St. Valentine at the Basilica of Santa Maria in Cosmodon, or at least his skull, anyway. Maybe. There was also another head of St. Valentine that resided in medieval England. Today, there are various churches in Europe and Britain that claim to have pieces of the saint, and... Maybe it seems a bit odd for me to start off a history of a holiday associated with love and consumerism with talking about the various body parts of a Christian saint, but let me explain. From late antiquity through much of the Middle Ages, St. Valentine's Day was exactly that, a day that commemorated a Christian person who was martyred sometime in the first few hundred years of the first millennium. Meaning this was a person who, according to tradition, was killed because of their Christian faith. In late antiquity, which is generally understood to be the period from about the 3rd century to the 8th century, 
Christian martyrs became the first Christian saints. If you'd like a really excellent and often read history of the saints in the early church, Peter Brown is your guy. And he does a really good job of explaining things this way. The early Christian saints were people who lived in a very special way. They died in a very special way, and they lay in the grave in a very special way. They are the very special dead. TM. Peter Brown hasn't actually trademarked that, but he probably should. For late antique and medieval Christian communities, being close to these very special dead was a means of being close with the holy and potentially miracles. Technically, theologically speaking, it's God who works the miracles through the saints and not the saints themselves who possess power. They're conduits, they have connections, they're intercessors, but it was still where a lot of people wanted to be nearby these saints' remains because people believed that the saints could really help them. It was a very common thing to do then to disperse the saint's body in parts because it was a way of sharing that power and spiritual presence with the greater Christian community and making the holy available to more people. Saint Valentine was just such a figure and in the later 5th century, Pope Galatius made February 14th the official saint's feast day because that was the day that he was believed to have been killed. And February 14th would be a day when St. Valentine would be remembered and celebrated for his exemplary holy life and death. Searching in the Acta Sanctorum database, which is an online version of the multi, multi-volume compilation of hagiographic texts, meaning texts related to saints' lives, that was started in the 17th century by the Bolandist Society, you actually get quite a few hits for saints whose feast days are February 14th, and within these, there are three Valentines. Valentine was a popular name in late antiquity. It comes from the Latin word valio, which means to be strong, and lots of people named their kids Valentine or Valentina. From these many Valentines, there are three candidates for the Saint Valentine who is commemorated on February 14th. The first was a martyr who died on February 14th with 24 companions in Africa, but we unfortunately don't get much more information than that. The other two Valentines have a bit more detail to go on. There's Valentine, the Bishop of Terni, which is in central Italy, and Valentine, the Roman priest. Both are third century. Both were, according to the hagiographic literature, which is our only source material, executed on February 14th by beheading in the reign of Emperor Claudius and buried on the Flaminian Way, which is a road. The dates this happened are given variously as 269, 270, or 273. Some historians think that maybe these two guys are really the same person, because the details of the priest and the bishop are pretty similar. Both the bishop Valentine and the priest Valentine have hagiographic accounts that are pretty formulaic as hagiographies go. They were both steadfast in their faith, 
They both tried to convert people to Christianity with some success. Both are associated with miracles, and both were written sometime in the 6th or 7th centuries, rather far away from the events that they purport to describe. Lots of early hagiographies are like this, though, so that's not terribly unusual. Ultimately, these various hagiographical accounts and mentions of Valentines in lists of early Christian martyrs became conflated to just one Valentine, who continued to be remembered on February 14th. Before we leave this late antique world for the Middle Ages, I will tell you that though the early church sometimes grafted Christian celebrations onto existing pagan ones, that's not what happened in the case of St. Valentine's Day. There is a notion that the Valentine observations were just a Christian redo of the Roman celebration of Lupercalia, which was a bunch of things. It was about ensuring fertility and land and people, preventing sickness and bad weather and other disasters. And a Christian rebrand of Lupercalia really does not seem to be the case here. According to this often repeated assertion, in 495, Pope Galatius abolished the cult of Lupercalia, and in its place he inserted a Christian festival that had a lot of the same spirit to it, and he hoped that just no one would notice. Well, by the end of the 400s, Lupercalia was pretty much gone anyway. Also, Pope Galatius had no patience for this kind of stuff. There is a letter from him that survives where he's really mad about pagan festivals, and he's yelling at you through the page to repent and stick to the quote-unquote true faith. And at no time does he say, hey, let's compromise, or you know what? I'm cool with using pagan celebrations just as long as we call them Christian and add a few Christian flares to them. The other thing is that this Saints' Day was an observation and celebration that commemorated martyrdom, so the fundamentals are pretty different. These Valentines had nothing to do with fertility or good weather, and that was not a focus of the feast day. If there is a lesson to be learned from the hagiographies and saint celebrations, it's that sticking to your missionary guns and having a special relationship with God can miraculously heal people and convert others to your religion. But some people in charge might get mad enough to kill you, but hey, that's the life and death of an early Christian saint. One could argue that the Valentine stories are about love, but an esoteric Christian brotherly kind of love that was celebrated, not the romantic kind. Until the 14th century, Valentine's Day was a pretty straightforward saint's day. Until Chaucer. Today, we pretty much know Geoffrey Chaucer for the Canterbury Tales, which is a wonderful series of stories within a story about religious pilgrims traveling to a saint shrine in medieval England. But Chaucer has another poem called The Parliament of Fowls, as in F-O-W-L-S, Fowls the Birds. And in this poem, he begins the association between love and mates and St. Valentine. In this poem, Chaucer writes, quote, For this was on St. Valentine's Day, when every fowl cometh there to choose his mate. Historians are not entirely sure 
why Chaucer made this connection between birds finding mates and a saint, but they have a few ideas. England did have a particular connection to Valentine. There was a head of St. Valentine that was brought to England in the 11th century by Emma, the Norman wife of Ethelred the Unready, and later the wife of Canute the Great, who ruled England from 1016 to 1035. Emma gave Valentine's head to the monks at Winchester, because what do you get the monks who already have everything? And the head got written about in 1116. Then we don't hear about it again. Probably we can blame Henry VIII's purge of the monasteries for that, but Winchester Abbey was still celebrating Valentine's Day in the 14th century, so it is likely that they had it during Chaucer's time. And it is likely that Chaucer was aware of this very prestigious relic. In the 14th century, the Monastery of Winchester owned the Tabard Inn, which was in Southwark, which was a suburb of London, and the abbot had a residence and a chapel at the inn. Maybe Chaucer actually went to this inn, but he definitely talks about it. In the general prologue of the Canterbury Tales, that's where the pilgrims all meet before heading out. But if Chaucer didn't hear about Valentine this way, there's little doubt that he knew about Valentine generally, because there is a lot of medieval literature that mentions him. All this might explain Chaucer's familiarity with Valentine, but it doesn't really explain why Chaucer made the connection between Valentine and choosing mates. February might seem a bit early for springtime mating seasons, but in the 14th century, the calendar was a little different from our own. Chaucer followed the old Julian calendar. The switch to the modern Gregorian calendar happened in 1582, but England, which in 1582 was a Protestant country, did not adopt the new calendar until the 18th century, and the Gregorian calendar wasn't a thing yet in Chaucer's time. These two calendars could be months off from one another, and the weather for Chaucer's Valentine's Day was maybe a little bit more like the weather for today's late February or early March. And in many parts of England, that is when things start to wake up again. A few medieval calendars do talk about birds starting to mate in mid-February. I live in the woods, and every year there's this moment in March when I'm out early with my dog and I hear the woodpeckers hammering at the trees, which is their spring mating call. And I come inside and announce, Chaucer was right. And my husband knows exactly what I'm talking about. The connection between mates and affection in Valentine's Day continued and developed in the Middle Ages. And in the mid-1400s, John Lydgate wrote, A Valentine to her that excelleth all, which was the first poem to use the saint's name as a shorthand for a poem about love. In this case, the love interest was the Virgin Mary, and it wasn't a romantic type of love, but the die was cast. Also in the 15th century, Charles of Orléans wrote two Valentine poems while he was imprisoned and waiting to be ransomed during the Hundred Years' War. Also in the 15th century, Marjorie Bruce was calling John Paston her, quote, right well-beloved Valentine, and signing off as, quote, your Valentine, in the famous English Paston letters. In England, St. Valentine survived the Reformation. Many early saints did, but the observation of the saint's day became altered from its medieval form. The traditions surrounding his day continued to evolve, and gift-giving and fortune-telling got added to the mix, which is something that historian Lee Eric Schmidt writes about. 
In the 18th century, a man named Henry Bourne wrote about a Valentine lottery game where women put their names into a vessel to be chosen by men or vice versa. And whoever got matched up were Valentines. The day was also part of a larger tradition of saints days where fortune telling with respect to your future spouse was considered particularly favorable. People also got together for elaborate costume parties and feasts and gave each other really expensive gifts. Samuel Pepys writes about this tradition in his famous diary in the 17th century. And he's actually complaining about his obligation to give his wife a suitable Valentine's present. He ended up giving her embroidered gloves and silk stockings, but he wasn't thrilled about it. The upper classes could make the whole thing a really expensive day, with people feeling pressured to one-up the other, and Pepys was complaining about how out of control it was all getting. A type of book called A Valentine Writer started to appear in Britain in the later 18th and 19th centuries. Valentine writers had names like, quote, the Turtle Dove, or Cupid's Artillery Leveled Against Human Hearts, and, well, you just can't top that. These books were relatively cheap, and they were filled with poetry that you were supposed to then copy out on your own and give to someone. They were printed yearly, and every year, they wanted you to buy a new one. In the 1840s, Valentine fever started to make its way to the United States. But an 1850 edition of Harper's Weekly did have a story about how Valentine's dealers would send out traveling agents with samples of their product, and the poor sales guys would have to explain to people what they were trying to sell them. It didn't take people too long, though, to get on board, and sending Valentine's through the mail became exponentially popular. Schmidt writes that the Hallmark Design Collection, if you were wondering, had quite a few Valentines to offer in the 19th century. In the 1840s and 1850s, there exist hundreds of Valentines in the archives of the Hallmark Design Collection, the Smithsonian, and the American Antiquarian Society. And things just increase from there. Valentine products were marketed hard, and there were newspaper advertisements and store window displays because it wasn't just the book you had to buy, you also had to buy fancy paper to copy out the poetry. In 1847, one Philadelphia store advertised that, quote, the castle of St. Valentine will be brilliantly illuminated this evening and kept open until 12 o'clock. Don't fail to pay a visit. And by this evening, it meant February 13th, a kind of Valentine's Day Eve shopping excursion. And if you're wondering what all this looked like, I'm not 100% certain since there is no illustration of it, but I'm imagining it looked like the Higby Santa scene in A Christmas Story, except replace Santa with a Cupid, and wind back the clock about 100 years. The advertising surrounding Valentine's Day was really intense, and a Valentine's Eve was just the culmination of weeks of promotion. People were sending a lot of Valentines through the mail and in person, and not only were you supposed to give Valentines of your own, but if you got one, you were supposed to give one back. And this would turn into a really big project, because you weren't just sending to a prospective or current love interest. You were supposed to send a valentine to anyone you felt affection for. In the United States, Valentine's Day was pretty much ignored until the 1840s, but it did catch on fast, and the commercial aspects were the more emphasized ones, which was a continuation of earlier trends in England. 
So if you think that Valentine's Day is largely aimed at selling you stuff, you're kind of right. And if you think that Valentine's Day is based on an early Christian martyr who was beheaded by a Roman emperor, you're right too. So maybe this year, send your Valentine a card with a skull and a heart on it, just to be safe. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. Please like and subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on social media. We're on Twitter as at History Footnote and Instagram as Footnoting History. You can also visit our Facebook page. Thank you for supporting Footnoting History in whatever way you can. And remember, the best stories are in the footnotes. <laughs>